Have you ever asked yourself how this is an expression of the Father's love? Listen, if Jesus were only a man, as the cults teach, if he were only a man, as the liberal theologians and unbelievers think, then this would be no demonstration of the Father's love at all. In fact, it would have supplied only a lack of the fact that he loved us because he would not have personally been involved in the giving of his son. It can only be a demonstration of the Father's love if the Lord Jesus is equal with the Father, if he's as much God as God the Father is, such that in the giving of the Son, God is giving of himself. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Understanding the Second Birth. It is the most quoted verse in the Bible known by millions around the world. It is displayed at ball games of all sorts, and it embodies the true meaning of grace. It is, of course, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And it is this verse in which we are looking at today along with the rest of our passage from our study in the Gospel of John. We began to look yesterday at the second birth as addressed in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. But here's Nicodemus. If you don't understand this earthly miracle, how can I tell you what's yet to come? And then he says with absolute authority on this subject that he addresses in no one has ascended into heaven. But he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus is saying, I can speak with absolute authority on heavenly things because no one has ever gone to heaven and lived there and then come back to tell about it. Now, Jesus didn't ascend into heaven and then descend. No, the Son of Man descended from heaven to earth because heaven was his home. He didn't need some vision, as these cultists say they have today. Heaven is his home, and so he can speak with absolute authority. He wants Nicodemus to know that what he's talking about is not some fantasy. It's real. And so Jesus doesn't leave him in the dark. He goes on and he tells him how to get it. Notice he appeals to him with an illustration from the Old Testament. Spurgeon once said that illustrations are like windows of light that open up the truth in a sermon. And of course, the way the Lord Jesus deals with Nicodemus is different from the way he deals with the Samaritan woman. She was ignorant of the scriptures, so he didn't use scriptural illustrations. But he did with this man because he knew the scripture. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Now, the illustration comes from where? Numbers what? Numbers 21. Good. Boy, I had a chorus in the first service. I think you all know that. But I, I want to refresh your mind with this passage because you need to be able to walk through it with your eyes closed. Again, if there's one passage in all the Bible that you ought to be able to explain, it's John 3, but the way the new birth comes is impossible to understand apart from the illustration in Numbers 21. They set out the children of Israel from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. 
The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable bread, the manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents. We saw their fiery and that they're reddish in color, but they also bit like fire. He sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses. We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord in you. Intercede, pray with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. Then only one could go to the Lord God. Today, if you are a believer, the Bible says you're a priest. You're a priest of God. You have direct access to the Father. But here Moses intercedes or prays for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. It shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. So he made a bronze serpent. He set it up there on a pole on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So God had judged his people. They had been bit. They were dying all over the place. The venom was in their veins. They couldn't read the Torah more. They couldn't pray more. They couldn't... Worship more to do anything to change their state because the wages of sin is death. And so they cry out to God Almighty for deliverance and God, their judge, becomes God, their savior. Of course, the remedy is in the likeness of the one that bit them because of the analogy that God wants to make with Christ. And God promised that if anyone would just believe his promise by looking at the bronze serpent raised high, they would live. Now, I don't know how Moses did it. Maybe he carried it on that pole through the multitudes. There's some two million people in the camp. I don't know that it could have been seen all from one spot, but it's on high, and as they probably walked through the camp, all could see it. And God wanted all to see it, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And of course, that symbol, a snake wrapped around a pole, is on every ambulance all around the world. Most people don't know it. It comes from Numbers chapter 21. It's a symbol of the American Medical Association. Don't tell the ACLU that. If they find out, they'll have it taken off. (laughs) Now look in verse 14. Circle three key words. As, so, and must. As, so, and must. They really unlock the verse. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so... Must the Son of Man be lifted up? See, my friends, when you chose to sin with Adam, you were born a sinner. Now, when Adam sinned, the Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 12, all of us sinned. You say, I don't understand it. I don't understand it either. But I know it's true because God said it, that in the loins of Adam was the whole human race. So when Adam chose to disobey God, the Bible says in Romans 5, 12, we sinned with him. We chose with him. And so we inherit that sin. It's original sin. We're born in sin. We're sinners by nature, by birth, by choice, by action. And so everyone who has ever descended from Adam has had the sinner's birth. And so they're left spiritually blind. They cannot see the kingdom of God. They are left spiritually separated. They cannot enter the kingdom of God. And they are left spiritually sinful because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And there's nothing the world can offer for this remedy from sin that eternal, the, the bite of eternal death has brought. But the analogy is God's answer. 
As the bronze serpent on the pole was God's remedy for these snake bites, so the Son of God lifted on a cross is God's remedy for sin. And so when the pole was lifted up, any Israelite who looked lived. And even so is the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up. Anyone who looks lives. Now notice the word must. He must. Be lifted up. Now, why must he be lifted up? Understand this word must doesn't mean in the sense that God had to die for us because God owed us absolutely nothing except the wrath that our sin deserves. God did not have to become a man. God did not have to lift his son up on a cross to die for you. If God had done absolutely nothing and left us in our sin and the punishment that it deserves, he would have been absolutely just. So in what sense is this must? Well, because God, as he will explain in verse 16, is a God of love. Right after man's sin, Genesis 3, God makes the first promise of a redeemer. And it becomes the promise of the whole Old Testament. And God keeps his promises. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Secondly, he must be lifted up because the Bible says the life is in the blood. You take your blood out, you're a dead cookie. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for your sin. And so the whole sacrificial system of animals' blood that was shed was symbolic of the Lamb of God who would ultimately come and die on your behalf. And so God kept His promise, but He must be lifted up because blood had to be shed and God must justly deal with sin. Paul will say in Romans 3 that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. If God is the justifier, the one who declares us righteous, declares us forgiven, declares us as if we had never sinned, as if we had always obeyed, if he's the justifier, that makes us the justifies. We can't do it. We can't justify ourselves. So God has to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So God is able to declare us righteous justly without violating his character through the giving of his son. But it's not enough that he died. Man must believe. Every snake-bitten Israelite had to look to live. And I'm sure there are many who thought it was absolute folly. Many who never even crawled out of their tents to take a glance at the brazen serpent because they thought it foolishness. And even so, many today, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, find the preaching of the cross to be foolishness, but it is the power of God to those who will believe to save you. And so he says that whoever believes may in him, in Christ, have eternal life. It's not found in religion or some religious act or ceremony, but in a person. Now, it's interesting because the brazen serpent is only mentioned one other time in all of Scripture. Right out in your margin, would you? 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18, 1 through 4. Let me read it to you. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. 
And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. These were places of idolatry. And he also, note, broke in pieces the bronze serpent which Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan, that is a piece of brass. 700 plus years later, they're burning smelly little incense candles to this brazen serpent, and they make it an object of worship. Man hasn't changed much. People today cling to their church membership, to some aisle they walked, to some baptism they had, to some confirmation they experienced, to some religious rite or ceremony. But unless you look to him, the Lord Jesus, it is absolute folly. Now, those are the world's greatest truths presented to us here in the first 15 verses, which brings us this morning to the world's greatest text. Notice verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Without question, this is the most loved, the most memorized, the most preached, the most known verse in all of Holy Scripture. Now, there is some debate as to whether these words were spoken by the Lord Jesus or whether they were spoken by the Apostle John. Some of you have a King James Bible, and it's not red letter here. Some of you have a King James Bible, and it is red letter here. Some of you have a New American Standard Bible, and it's red letter here. Now, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, some of them have it as the words of Christ, some of them don't understand Red letter editions aren't inspired by God. Not to mention there was no punctuation in the original, no quotation marks, no punctuation of any kind. In fact, there was a time, remember the red letters are added by publishers so that kind of like chapter and verse divisions that were added a thousand years after the Bible was done. Just help us to look at a page and quickly say, oh yeah, those are the words of Christ. Maybe if we're looking for something he has said. But the red letters aren't more inspired than the rest of the text. So it really doesn't matter whether these are the words of Jesus or whether the words of John. In fact, I could give you an argument that would convince you it's the words of Jesus. I could probably turn around and give you another argument and convince you it's the words of the Apostle John. Hey, listen, when red letters were added to the Bible, it split entire congregations. Because some people thought that there were somehow degrees of inspiration in the Bible. There's not. It's all the Word of God. And whether these words fell from John's pen or from Christ's lips makes no difference. Now, please note how verse 16 begins. It begins with that little word for. It's the Greek word gar. And what he is doing is he's expanding on what he has just said in verse 15. The Apostle John wants us to understand God's motivation for the giving of his son. And that the giving of his son was given out of a heart of love. God gave his son, which was the greatest expression of the loving heart of God. Understand that God's love is not some sentimental feeling, but it's a love that costs. He gave what was most dear to him, and what was most dear to him was his one and only son. And John wants us to know that when he gave him, he gave him not for a few limited people, Certainly not just for the nation of Israel, as Nicodemus might have later thought, but he gave him for the entire world. Now, there are some people, they are hyper-Calvinists, 
who say that the death of Jesus Christ is a tome and his blood was limited. It was particular for those who would believe that the Lord Jesus died for an elect company of people only. I want to tell you that is slander on the love of God. He died for everyone. John will later say in 1 John 2, 2, that he died for the sins of the whole world. I can look at anyone in the face and say, God loves you, and he proved that he loved you by sending his son to die in your place. It was not for a select few. It was unlimited. So he died for all so that none would have an excuse. See, had Christ not died for all, some would say, okay, we're all worthy of condemnation, but you made a way of escape for that fellow, but you never made a way of escape for me because you never died for me. Nonsense. We will see that a man is condemned to hell not just because he's a sinner, but as John will argue, he is doubly con condemned because he doesn't believe in God's provision. It is your belief or your unbelief that is going to determine whether you go to heaven or hell. Now it says, for God so loved the world. Now very often when we think of the cross, we think of it as a demonstration of the Son's love. Paul will write in Galatians 2 that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. But this verse tells us that this is not a demonstration of the Son's love, but of the Father's love. Have you ever asked, how is it that John 3.16 is an expression of the Father's love? I remember listening to Phil Donahue years ago, had Jerry Falwell on there interviewing him. Falwell, man, he'd, he'd charge uh, hell with a squirt gun. And he did on that show. Everybody in the audience hated him, but he stood for what was right. Anyway, the preciousness of human life. And, of course, Donahue interrupts and says, Why is this a demonstration of the Father's love? How did God love us by sending his son? If he really loved us, he would have died. Good point. Have you ever asked yourself how this is an expression of the Father's love. Listen, if Jesus were only a man, as the cults teach, if he were only a man, as the liberal theologians and unbelievers think, then this would be no demonstration of the Father's love at all. In fact, it would have supplied only a lack of the fact that he loved us because he would not have personally been involved in the giving of his Son. It can only be a demonstration of the Father's love if the Lord Jesus is equal with the Father, if he's as much God as God the Father is, such that in the giving of the Son, God is giving of himself. And of course, that's the argument of the Gospel of John. Jesus will say, believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He'll tell Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and the Son are inseparable. And so when God gave His Son, He gave of Himself. And of course, any gift, the degree of love is shown by the cost of the gift and also by the worthiness or unworthiness of the recipient. The more it costs and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater expression of love. God gave everything to you and I who deserve nothing. Nothing but that punishment that our sin deserves. And so the cross is the proof that God loves us. D.L. Moody was in England on one of his crusades 
when a young budding Englishman by the name of Henry Morehouse approached him. D.L. Moody, if you don't know, he was the Billy Graham of his day in the late 1800s. And Morehouse asked Mr. Moody that if he ever came to America, could he preach in his pulpit? Well, thinking he'd never come, very few people made the journey across the ocean in those days by boat. It was dangerous, it was costly, it was long, it was sickening for many. He thought he'd never come. Sure. <laughs> Little did he know, Henry Morehouse knocks on his doorstep one day to take him up on his invitation. Of course, Moody thought, well, what can I do, this young preacher? I'll let him preach, and if he botches the text, I'll go up after him and preach after him. Well, Henry Morehouse got up there and he preached on John 3.16 with such power and passion that it touched Moody's heart and he invited him to preach the next night and the next night and the next night and the next night for over a week for 10 days. And he took John 3.16 and he broke it into 10 parts and he just emphasized the portion of the text. And by the way, that would be a good exercise for any of us to read this verse through thoughtfully putting emphasis on at least 10 places in the text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he... For God so loved the world. Step through the whole verse. It will be a blessing to you as you reflect on its meaning. In either case, Henry Morehouse became known as the man who moved the man who moved millions. And in the final night of his series... He said, I've been trying to tell you night after night how much God loves you. But suppose I could borrow Jacob's ladder and ascend to heaven and walk on those streets of gold. And suppose I could find Gabriel, the herald angel, who stands in the very presence of God and ask him, tell me, Gabriel, how much does God love the world? He would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how much God loves the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his monogene. Now, those words, only begotten, translating a single word in the original is a very important word. And again, repetition is the mother of teaching, so you need to know what it means, only begotten. What does it mean that he is the only begotten son? It means he's uniquely born. And in this case, the virgin-born son. Now, the term uh, appears in only one other place in all the Bible outside of the usage for Christ. And it's found in Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, we to are told, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises was offering up his monogene, his only begotten son. Now, in what sense was Isaac the uniquely begotten son? Now, remember, Abraham had other children. He had Ishmael through Hagar. In fact, after Sarah died, he married Keturah and had six other kids. <laughs> God just totally revitalized this man's body. But when he was 100 and Sarah was 90, when their bodies were as good as dead, they had a baby. It was a miracle birth. And so Isaac becomes an illustration, the New Testament tells me, a type, a picture of Christ, not just in his birth, but in how potentially he could have died up there on Mount Moriah as a substitute. And so understand, the Lord Jesus is the monogene. He is the only begotten son. When he left heaven, 
He took on human flesh. He was never beget by Joseph's seeds. He was overshadowed, or Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The only way to escape the consequences of the sinner's birth was by the virgin birth. In order to be sinless, you had to be somehow uniquely born. Because we're all born in sin. And so the Lord Jesus came by a supernatural conception. Now understand, to be truly a substitute who could die... He had to be sinless. But if he were born of Joseph or any other man, he would be a sinner. So he is uniquely conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now understand, he came to die. That was his whole purpose. For this cause I have come into the world, he will say. He came to die in our place. It was part of the plan and purpose of God from eternity past before the foundation of the world, the revelation will say, in the mind and heart of God, he was crucified. Now, God the Father could not die because God is spirit and blood had to be shed because the wages of sin is death and the life is in the blood and so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And no son of Adam could die because no son of Adam would qualify. So for God to become a man, he had to bypass Adam's an Adamic birth and he came by a virgin birth. Please understand, he was not God the Son because he was virgin born. He was virgin born because he was and is God the Son. He came that he might not be infected by sin. He came to earth that you might go to heaven. He was born of a virgin that you might be born again. Now don't miss this. The blood that he shed there on Calvary was the blood of Almighty God. You say, God doesn't have blood, does he? He did when the Lord Jesus walked upon the earth. Do you remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Did you hear that? He told them to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This verse tells me that God purchased the church with his own blood. Now, do you know that when a mother carries a baby in her womb, that the blood type of the baby is not set by the mother, but by the father. The mother can have one blood type, and the baby can have an entirely different blood type. In fact, some paternity suits are settled by finding out whether a certain man could have sired a child by looking at the blood type that the baby has. Now, don't get the idea that the blood that circulates in the body of the baby in a mother's womb is the same blood of the mother's, because it is not. That's why a mother with AIDS can give birth to an AIDS-free baby if, when the baby is delivered, the baby is in no way caught. Now, please understand that the blood that flowed through the veins of the Lord Jesus Christ was not the blood of the Virgin Mary. His humanity was sired by God the Holy Spirit. When he hung on that cross and he fell to, and then fell to the ground, when it dripped to the ground, that rich, royal, red, ruby blood of Christ, it was not the blood of Mary, it was the blood of God. Sinless blood, innocent blood, sacred blood, holy blood, God's blood because of a virgin birth. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 
7478 and requesting program John 008. If you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, remember that you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.